I'll tell you what's going on with that. Let's pray first. Father, we thank you for the day you've given us. Thank you for, thank you for the, your people. And thank you just for the encouragement we had this morning, learning from your word, learning from First Peter. And I pray you help us to apply these things to our lives. And now, Lord, as we uh, continue in studying uh, your son, the person and work of, of Jesus Christ, I pray, Lord, that we would uh, look at these old uh, heresies, these old wrong views about Jesus' humanity, and, Lord, that we won't commit the same types of things and that we might detect it. Um, these wrong views and people that we talk to and be able to lovingly uh, point them back to your word, point them back to your truth. And Lord, I pray that we wouldn't commit these same errors and think less of your son than we should, but give him all the praise and glory that he deserves. And we pray this all in Christ's name. Amen. Okay, yeah, so we are going to start in right away with the heresies that relate to Jesus' humanity. Okay? And for those of you who have not been here, we are doing a Christology class. And can anyone tell me again what Christology is? So you have Christ, and you add ology to the end of a word, and therefore you get a, a study of, yeah. So Christology, you don't even need to type in there. And so this really talks about the what. Okay, yes, those, those, that's, those are also big part of it. But the really big picture is just all you're doing in Christology, when it boils down to it, is you're studying the person and work of Christ. So this is where we've been for quite a while, the person of Christ. And after we finish his, uh, the humanity this week and then the uh, union of those two natures, the union of his divine nature and human nature, then we'll move on to his work. But we've been here in the person of Christ, talking about his deity and now his humanity and the next week we'll start the union of these two natures okay so that's where we are right now so we've really we spent most of our time talking about his deity didn't we and uh, we spent now several weeks talking about his humanity so the things we talk about tonight are not to the exclusion of his deity. We've already fully affirmed that. We've looked very thoroughly into the scriptures about what his deity means and that he is truly God. So we're not denying any of that. But now we do want to focus on his humanity, also showing that he is truly human. And as we've looked through the scriptures, we've established that he is truly man, haven't we? But we're going to look today, at the tail end of that, at some heresies. What's a heresy? A lie. False teaching? Yeah. Now, are there levels? Like, could someone get up there and uh, get up to the pulpit and say, um, like I've done before, say, uh, I don't know, uh, Aquila and Priscilla took Barnabas aside and showed him the way of God more accurately? Just a slip of the tongue. When that was actually someone different, it was actually Apollos, right? Is that heresy? It was, first of all, it was an accident. Second of all, does that send anyone to hell? by saying that on accident. It doesn't. So that would be an incorrect teaching. It's still false, right? But heresies are things that do send people to hell because it's a completely wrong view of, of, who, of who God is, of who the Father or the Son or the Holy Spirit is. Yes. Mm -hmm. Yes, and I can't dive into all their motives because um, Satan is, in, is at work and the sons of disobedience is according to Ephesians chapter 2 and with that you can't always know exactly what the motives of these false teachers are um, but they are under the influence of Satan so whatever their motives are we know what Satan's motives are and those are to deceive and to mislead us and to take us away from God's truth so it's kind of a dark section here looking at the heresies uh, that's why I don't like spending a lot of time on it and I don't really look for oh yeah I get to talk about the heresies today I don't really enjoy it but you need to do it because You'll see it in your reading, and you'll see it as you interact with people, and uh, we need to be aware of it ourselves. So let's uh, look at the notes there. And you see in the box, just a note on our approach. After seeing what the scripture says about Christ's person and work, the absurdity of the various Christological heresies readily becomes apparent. So how absurd these things are. After you've already done all the scriptural study, and you know what the Bible says about it, when you see a heresy, what do you what what happens? You say, that's not right. 
it's not e it's not hard to find the heresy, is it? So I think you'll see that, and you've probably already seen that as we did the deity of Christ as well. So really two big um, heresies, and these again relate to his humanity. We talked about heresies that relate to his deity, right? These are heresies that relate to his humanity. So the first one we'll look at is docetism. And that's a strange word. Not desotism. Docetism. Hard to say, hard to spell, everything above. Yep. Now take a look at this. The, uh, the Bible is, comes into existence. Or the, the canon's completed. New Testament's completed. And then wrong views of the Bible in the 1st and 2nd century, 3rd century A.D., wrong views about the Bible, wrong views about Jesus come into existence. What, what do you think will be the first thing that would happen? People would deny what about Jesus? What do you think they would deny? That's what you would think. Yeah. And that's what you would see today. Because in the broad scheme of things, you don't see a lot of people denying Jesus' humanity. There was a camp there for a while, just various people saying Jesus never existed, but I think enough history has been done now for people, historians don't really deny that Jesus ever existed, but what do they deny? Yeah, they would just say he's just a normal human who, who people followed and people started spreading lies about. That's the way they would approach Jesus. But as uh, Buswell said here, it's interesting to note that the first formal heresy in regard to the person and the natures of Christ was a denial, not of his deity, but of his humanity. So it is an interesting note. So it tells you that it's been around for a long time, and it tells you you'll probably see it again. So let's look at the definition and description real quick. Um, it's from the Greek word dakeo. Did I have blanks there? No blanks. Okay, I made it easy on you all this week. And that just means to seem or suppose or appear, okay? So that's why we get this word. See that's see how it's spelled, guys? The newcomers in there? <laughs> Can you see that? What's that? Oh yeah, I got it. Yep. Yeah. I appreciate that. Actually make some copies. Would you mind making a couple of copies? Of uh no of uh the notes. Okay. Do you need a key? Okay. And he's got everything. <laughs> he knows where the dry erase stuff is. Sure. If you don't, if you don't mind, I'd appreciate it. And maybe take, make a couple of these too. We'll probably need this too. Okay. So that's where they get the word docetism from, from that Greek word. Um, and docetists believe that Jesus only appeared to be a man. Sounds strange, doesn't it? But this was the teaching that was going around. They said that Jesus only appeared to be a man. So what are they not denying at this point? They're not denying his deity, but they are denying his humanity, which is just, just kind of a confusing, confusing thing. I'm not sure all the reasons, but we'll see why here, at least one of the big reasons they had. So they had an affirmation of Christ's deity, but a denial of his humanity. So was this a noble attempt? When you read this next part, we'll say, okay, maybe, do we understand why they did it? Docetists believe, believe the Gnostic teaching that the flesh is inherently evil. And that's at the bottom of it. There's this teaching going around in the first, second centuries that the flesh is inherently evil. Now, we'll, we'll stop that conversation until we get to the application section in a moment. But that's what they believe. The flesh is inherently evil. So therefore, they believed God could not possibly come down to earth and take on flesh without being tainted by its evil nature. So you say it may be a noble attempt at first to preserve his deity. I, whether you say it's noble or not, it, it's wrong and it's erroneous. Um, that's not the teaching of Scripture, that flesh is inherently evil. We'll talk again later on about, or at the end of our session today, about human nature and that kind of thing and how it's been corrupted. But look at 1 John 4, 1 through 3. Someone read those three verses, please. 1 John chapter 4, verses 1 through 3.
And you can see that uh, John maybe wasn't dealing with this heresy fully developed, but maybe he was dealing with, with it as it was being um, in its beginnings. Yeah. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, so look at verse 2. I think you see a, a key phrase. Every spirit that confesses that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is from God. So that's how you know if it's a true spirit. If that spirit confesses, yes, Jesus Christ has come in the flesh. He is God incarnate. Didn't just appear to be man, but he is man. Fully man, fully God. Then you know it's a true spirit. Flesh, the, the spirits that say otherwise, they're false spirits or false teachings. So that's a, right from the scriptures. And look at that, uh, 2 John uh, chapter 7, or chapter 7, verse 7. Someone please read that. 2 John 7. Yeah, so you can see John was dealing with this. And again, you would think that he would be more like the Gospel of John, really showing his deity. But here in these epistles, he's really saying, hey, he did come in the flesh. He really did. Yeah. Yeah. So somehow this Jesus, and under this view, would have thought that somehow he Jesus was kind of like I don't know, maybe tricking them, or maybe kind of some kind of some kind of mind trick he played on them, making people think he was a human. But again, this is why we started with the scriptural teaching because we've seen a bunch of scripture references that show that he was truly human, truly did have flesh. That's why we did that at the front end, so this can just look for you know as absurd as it actually is. Mm -hmm. Exactly. Yeah, you no, know, definitely. You know, I don't have to even assume that. Yeah. And we'll talk about that in, in Romans 5 in just a little bit. Yeah, but going into their minds, what they'd be thinking is if he's coming in human flesh, would be a Christian. Right. And that, that's why I say, okay, well, maybe we'll give them the benefit of the doubt. But there's too much scripture that right. says the contrary. And we'll look at a couple key references in a little bit that says, they talk about, you know, the way Rick got originally. Do you have what you need? Here, do you take what you need? Yeah. And then uh, we'll we'll get to it in a minute. Um, but yeah, so we'll look at some of those in a minute, Ernesto. Okay, so what about today? Um, no formal. You don't see anyone saying, I'm a docetist, do you? I haven't met anyone who says that. Um, but Grudem. I did quote him. I think he says something important here. He says, modern evangelicals who neglect to teach on the full humanity of Christ can unwittingly support docetic tendencies in their hearers. What does he mean by that? Mm -hmm. Yeah. Right. And yeah, what he's saying basically is this. Um, you can be formally a so something, right? Say, like, I'm former, formally, I am a such and such. That's what I am in title. But you might have the next guy saying, no, no, I'm not that. But his life and his teaching or what he says, he might be functionally what he's actually denying. So us, when we teach the Bible, we need to teach both sides of the coin. Yes, he's fully God fully man, because we don't want to be functional docetists. Does that make sense? Where the other guy is saying, yes, I am a docetist, and they teach it. We don't want to say, no, no, I'm not a docetist, but then practically or functionally be one, because we neglect the teaching of the humanity of Christ. 
Does that make sense? Does that distinction make sense? Okay, Daniel? Right, and that's a fair question. Now I'll open it up. Are there any key, I'm thinking of one key reference, any key references in the Old Testament that did affirm that he would be God and man? Any prophecies of the coming of Christ? Sure, yeah. Or within, at least within two chapters of each other, yeah. I'm thinking of Isaiah. 52, okay. I'm thinking, I'm thinking of Isaiah. I was thinking of Isaiah ch uh, chapter 7, where he said that he would be born of a virgin. And also in Isaiah 9, where it just talked about him being the wonderful counselor, the mighty God, the Prince of Peace, the everlasting Father. So I'm thinking of those references. Um, and I, I, those are coming to my head right now. I'm sure we could probably think of more, though. Um, but yes, did they speculate about how he would come? Did they speculate about what he should be doing when he first got there? Even the disciples speculated, or even the disciples had expectations that Jesus wasn't going to meet yet. Like, are you going to restore the kingdom to Israel now? He said, no, not, not yet. We're not doing this yet. I have to suffer first, Isaiah 53. Yeah, does that answer your question, though? Isaiah chapter 7. If you, if you were to read through Isaiah chapter 7 and Isaiah chapter 9, I think you would see what we're, what we're saying. But now we're going into Apollinarianism, and we'll cover that quickly, because I can't even say that word. <laughs> so I can't dwell on something I can't say very well. Okay, so all these weird names are from something or somebody, aren't they? His names just, just come out of thin air. Now, who, what's this name based on? Apollinarianism. <laughs> Someone with a name like that, yeah. <laughs> um, I've heard, the, I've heard that title thrown out. It wasn't until I went back and studied it and remembered, okay, yeah, it's this guy named Apollinaris. Okay, and he lived, in, uh, he died around 390 A.D. And again, this could have started as a noble attempt. He, it started out as a reaction against Arianism. We talked about Arianism, which is modern-day what? Jehovah's Witnesses, yeah. We talked about that under the deity of Christ. Um, so I think he was reacting to that heresy, and then he, but he went too far. Just like, you know, you had the pendulum, you know, it's swinging there, and you swing in there, but it's over here, and you think, that's not right, and then you swing all the way over here, and then end up in another wrong position. So I think that's what's happening here in Apollinarianism. So Busville said, so strongly opposed to Arianism was this guy, Apollinaris, in his view. He reacted to the other extreme, and what did he do, according to the, the statement here? He reduced the humanity of Christ. He reduced it. And uh, that's, I'll stop right there. I have the notes there for a little more information. And uh, there's a note there um, from a guy named Philip Schaff if you want to do some more reading. But he reduced it, okay, and didn't emphasize it nearly as much. And again, could have started out as a noble attempt. Um, this guy, Apollinaris, and his dad um, even taught, were respectable uh, ministers in, in their context. I can't remember where they, can't remember where they ministered top of my head. But even Athanasius. Um, slightly respected his dad. So he was even, whenever he was uh, speaking against the heresy of Apollinaris, he was still kind of reluctant to throw his dad under the bus, too. So, so you can see where this is kind of a tough thing, but and you can see where heresy is coming from. Sometimes, from good context, they can flow out of. So. Now, do those two ba make basic sense? Those two heresies? They're either reducing the humanity of Christ or denying it. That's what it boils down to. So we've seen two heresies that um, deny the deity. Now we're looking at two heresies that deny or reduce the humanity. And uh, we'll see how they all fit together in a big chart later on. Uh, Jimmy G, do you have a question?
Yeah, it was uh, for the deity. It's uh, Arianism and uh, Ebionism. Yeah. And uh, the notes are online, by the way. So you can just, they're all there from the beginning to end. And for here, for the humanity, you have Docetism and Apollinarianism. Do you have the notes, by the way? Wendell made some extra copies. Great, great. Now, um, I think he printed some out to say application. Is that true? Do I have them all? Who, who needs this one? It says application at the top. You have it, Ernesto? Okay. Y'all need it? Okay, then he needs one. And do y'all need application? All right. Okay, so there's some great application that we can make here. Um, there's about 100 things we could say, but we uh, kept it at a minimum. Five or six things we'll say about an application. So, just that, um, as we've, we've talked about the humanity of Christ, anything come to your mind as you've thought about it and put, put thought into the humanity of Christ in terms of a, um, application for our life, in terms of important implications for the way we live or the way we think about God, the way we think about Christ? Anything stick out to you? Anything practical? Yeah. Amen to that. And I think that's probably the biggest one. And uh, I, I don't have it in that sheet right there today for a couple reasons. One, we've talked about it a decent bit. And, I, I, you know, it's systematic theology, so categories might be able to fit here. And then it's like, well, it could fit there, too. So I saved it for the work of Christ in talking about his, uh, his priestly work. Um, so we'll talk about it more there. But I think that's one of the biggest things in this whole idea of him being a human and the way he identifies with us and sympathizes with us. Um, but we'll mention the first thing here, and it really goes right along with what Jimmy just said. It's not separate from that at all. But it's that God is both transcendent and eminent. And what in the world does that mean? Mm -hmm. Right, exactly. What's the opposite of that? Because this is not, it's not clear, like, something's going to happen. Right, right. I, I don't know. The opposite of transcendent? Yeah. Oh. Um, earthly. <laughs> What's that? Descendant? I like that. <laughs> not transcendent, but descendant. Um, yeah, so he's transcendent. He's way above us, and he's close to us. Best way to think of it. And I'm using these words, again, I'm trying to use as many traditional words as possible because these are the words you'll keep running across as you study theology. These are the, the words you'll find. He's both transcendent and he's eminent. He is way above us and he's with us. This is good news, isn't it? So the way we think about God, the way we think about Christ, this is crucial. And this is one really important application of his humanity because he couldn't have this eminence with us if he were not human. So let's look at Psalm 113. We'll just look through the, this whole psalm really briefly to survey it so we can see. But uh, this is a very key psalm for this truth of God's transcendence and his eminence. Wait, let's look at Psalm 113. We'll just, let's walk through the verses. Um, in the first five verses, you can see his transcendence. It establishes that God is way above us. So you have the, he deserves praise. Anyone, anything else deserve praise? From anyone else or anything? No, only only God, only Yahweh. So praise the Lord, praise the servants of the Lord. Uh, the Lord is high is above all nations. In verse four, um, in verse three, the name of the Lord is to be praised. He deserves all worship, and you see this all throughout the psalm. And then in verse four, in particular, you have the height of His position, the height of His glory. Where where is the Lord? He's above, high above all nations. Where is his glory? Above the heavens. Not just above the, uh, the, the land, it's above the heavens. 
It's way, way high. And then he's, he's incomparable. You can't, who can you compare to God? Verse 5. Who can? You, who can? You, no one. Who is like the Lord our God? Who is enthroned on high? No one. He's transcendent. Can't compare him to anybody. So that's extreme. That's that's true. He's established that as true. But also verses six through nine shows the other side of the coin. Look at verse nine. Verse six through nine is eminence. So even though that's true, what does he do? Humbles himself to behold the things that are in heaven and on the earth. And he cares for the poor and the needy. He raises the poor from the dust. He lifts the needy from the ash heap. And he exalts them. He makes them sit with princes, with the princes of his people. So does God care for the lowest of lows? God care for the lowlies like, like us, like you and me? He cares for us. He does. He reaches down. He doesn't just say, well, I'm God. I can't help you like a lot of fake gods do, right? Why, which doesn't make any sense to me. Why would all these people, especially in, in the early days in the, in the first century, why would they make up a God that doesn't like them? Why not make up a God that's just loving like people do now? You know what I mean? Yeah. If you were to make up a God, if you were like, I'm going to design this God how I want him, why would you design a God who's just high ab- above everything and doesn't care about anyone, anything else? I don't understand why they would do that. But the one true God of the Bible that no man created, that no man made up, but reveal himself to us, he is both transcendent and eminent. Yeah. Yeah. Right. And they didn't get that from the Bible, did they? They made it up. Yeah. Or someone told them. Yeah, that's what I, if I'm going to have, if I'm going to follow my own path, follow my own religion, I'm going to make up something different on my own, something that would suit me better. But God knows exactly what we need, and that's why he's revealed himself to us in his word and told us the truth about himself. So yeah, and he can, he's even concerned from the barren woman, it says. So these are people who are in the, the greatest types of struggles. That's the point here. It's, it's talking about people, the poor, the needy, the barren woman, people who face you know, great struggles in this life. God reaches down and takes care of them too. So where he's, he's way above us, we can't reach him, he reaches down to us. So I look at, uh, I think, an important implication of this in John 8.23. You say, well, is that just talking about God the Father and Jesus is not involved in this? Is that the way it works? Psalm 113? Just talking about God and not Jesus? That's a false dichotomy, isn't it? Look at, look at John chapter 8. This is just one example. You could, you could look at uh, John 17 like we did last week and the glory that he shared with the Father before the world was. But uh, look at, uh, just someone read that whenever you get a chance, John uh, 8, 23. Yeah, we could keep going, but that's just one little implication right there that Jesus himself is transcendent as God. And again, we've established his deity, or we've studied out his deity. And I left you some other references that you could look at, some really neat ones about his transcendence and eminence. Okay, so that's the first point of application I wanted to make. And again, as that, we'll look at his priestly work as he did come and take flesh to work as high priest. Um, to make the final sacrifice for sin. We'll talk about that more under his work, okay? It's one of his offices. But look at the next point. Uh, it's a 272 there. Christ's humanity gives us an example of faith, okay? Christ, he, Christ's humanity gives us an example to follow, a faithful example to follow. So First Peter, chapter 2. Still want to read verses 21. Through 23. Uh, yes, yes, please. Oh, you know what, Jimmy? Are you in First Peter? Yes. First Peter two. Okay. Hey, we forgive you. <laughs> yeah, 21 through 23. Thanks. Even here unto where ye are, because Christ also suffered for us, 
he did no sin, neither was guile found in his mouth. He, when he was reviled, reviled not again. When he suffered, he threatened not, but committed himself to him that judges righteously. Yeah, so is Jesus an example for us to follow? And what in particular, what type of example is he? What does it describe about Jesus? What, what was he facing here in this context? Suffering. Oh, <laughs> yeah. So that's not a fun thing, but does he leave us an example of how to suffer in this fallen world? You bet he does. So I do never, I never wanted to diminish the fact that he's our example. Uh, we could talk about that for quite a while, but is he just an example? Yes. Yeah. So, does it mean that we should all build a little cross, put it on our back, and walk around the nation? As I've seen someone do, or I've heard about someone doing. Does that is that what First Peter's talking about? No, it's not. Because he's more than just our example. He has paid the, the sacrifice. It's ever heard of the finished work of Christ? It's done. We don't keep doing it. He's done the work, and he's left us here for a certain reason now. Not to carry a cross around on our back, a literal one, but something much harder than that. Something much greater, something much deeper, something much more significant than that. Bringing the gospel to this world. And will we suffer for it? Oh, yeah. And it's not like a checkbox. Like, yep, walk around the nation with the cross on my back. Something more significant than that. But, so I don't want to diminish that he is our example, but he, I would say that he's more than that. He is the object of our faith. So that's number three. Christ is the object of our faith. And uh, this is something that's key because in a lot of liberal churches, they would emphasize his example and how we should follow his example and do good deeds the way he does. And there's, that's, that's an amazing thing, isn't it? But that's where they leave it. And they diminish the fact that he's the object of our faith. He is the object where we put all of our faith and trust in for salvation. And then this is this is the epitome of the of the of the Christian life, isn't it? Of biblical Christianity, that we put our faith in Christ and nowhere else. And that he's trustworthy. So he is certainly an example of faith. It says here in the notes, he's much more than that. So he's not merely the best Christian to ever live, is he? Is Jesus the best Christian to ever live? <laughs> it's a trick question, isn't it? It's a trick question. He's yes, the way we put it, it's not he's not just the best Christian ever lived. Okay? That would be an understatement, wouldn't it? And it'd be a misunderstanding of what he actually did. Because he's Christ and we are Christians, followers of him. So he's not just merely the best Christian that ever lived. He's the foundation of everything. He's the foundation of the faith. He's the object of our faith. Nothing less than that. Right. 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 And that's, and in terms of application, that's a perfect point because lots of people are willing to admit he was a great guy. But... Okay, was he a great guy? I mean, that, that almost makes me cringe because that's such an understatement, isn't it? Um, he's the whole foundation of the Christian faith. He's the, it's happened in him, and it was the event of the cross and his burial, his resurrection. That It's all based on that event, the historical event, and we place all our faith and trust in that for the forgiveness of our sins, and that's the bottom line. So he wasn't just a good guy. So number four, are, is everyone making, it makes sense to everyone so far? Steve? Right. So that would be the opposite side where you're diminishing. Maybe you're not denying, but you're at least diminishing his deity if that's the case. Yeah. Is that where you're going with that, Steve? Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And then, um, number four. I told you, Ernesto, we'd get to this one. Was human nature created evil? No, you're right. So human nature was not created intrinsically evil. 
He was <laughs> a lot of evil around us right now, isn't there? Any scripture you'd go to to say that it was not created that way, though? Where would you go? Oh, yeah, I'd start at the beginning of the Bible. <laughs> yes, that's exactly right, verse 27. So will someone read that for us, please, and take a look at it. So, in whose image did God create male and female? His own image. Was that an evil nature? You bet, you bet it was definitely not. So, it was not created intrinsically evil. And then what did he say after he created everything in verse 31? Yeah. And in fact, he says, God saw that, yeah, all he's made, and he says, very good, very good. And there was evening and there was morning, the sixth day. Very good creation. And that's a way of saying this is this is this is amazing. This is perfect. This is awesome. And then Second uh, Corinthians five twenty one. Second Corinthians five twenty one, when Jesus came, there's just one reference and took on uh, human nature. Did that mean he had to become intrinsically evil by taking on flesh? And here's just one reference to tell us that that's true. He did not become intrinsically evil because he took on flesh. What does Second Corinthians five twenty one say? Yeah, he knew he himself knew no sin, nor was any deceit found in his mouth, like Peter told us. He was completely sinless, so being in the flesh did not demand that he become intrinsically evil. So I make sure we all understand that point because that's where docetism came from, saying that's incompatible, they thought. Because it started out perfect, and that's what Jesus took on himself, wasn't it? Now, he still faced the, the effects of the fall in terms of you know, sickness, um, death, pain, hardship and labor, those kind of things. But he himself never sinned. Right. It's not like the sin generalized us. It's uh, individual, if you will. I mean, sin in the world, but we are all affected by that because it's all just human. Yeah. Yeah, not counting the trespasses against them, but counting against counting it against whom? Him. Against him. This is where you have this this significant teaching of the penal. What's penal mean? Penalty. Yeah. What substitution mean? Taking the place. Substituted the penalty. He took our place. He took our penalty. He took our punishment. In our place, condemned he stood, as the hymn says. Right. But he bore them all for us. Yeah, bore the punishment for them all. Yeah. 
He wasn't contaminated. He was tempted by it. And he was not contaminated by it. And he bore it all for us. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Pass on like a partial righteousness to us. I mean, that's not going to work either. It's not. So. What's up, Mr. Maxson? Clarence? Yes. Perfect transition, Clarence. That's where we're going now. Yes. So, he didn't. We're not created. Human nature. And the garden was not created intrinsically sinful. However, something happened. And this is where we're going now. What happened? Two chapters later. However long the time that was, I don't know. But sin. Sin of the first Adam. Christ's humanity places him in a perfect position to reverse the curse. Dealing first here with the sin brought by the first Adam. So look at Romans 5. And just as you're turning there, just reminding you of the way um, the heart is since the fall. The heart's desperately sick, isn't it? Deceitful above all else. Who can understand it? Those kind of ideas. We are dead in our trespasses and sins. Sin is reigning through the death of Adam. And therefore, we're all born into sin. And again, this is why the virgin birth was so significant, because was Christ born into sin? He was conceived of whom? Conceived by the Holy Spirit. So he was not born intrinsically evil like we are now. Now we're all born into sin because of our first daddy, because of Adam. So look at verse 12, chapter 5, and we'll just uh, show what's going on here. So think of, uh, like, the therefore, on the one hand, just as through one man sin entered the world and death through sin, and so death spread to all men because all sin. This is a key reference here. So you have on the one hand, who's the one man? In verse 12 there? It's Adam, yes. So through that man, sin came into the world. And because of sin, what did, what did sin bring? It brought death. And then death spread to where? To all men. Why? Because all sinned. So is anyone exempt at this point? No, we're all affected by the curse. None of us saying, well, it's not, my, it's not my fault, it's Adam's fault. We're all in this together. We're all in the same family of sinners. The, yes, the whole world is, is kept under custody by the law. All have sinned, all have transgressed. So we could, I mean, we don't have time to cover this whole chapter. It'd be great if we could. And in fact, I think Mike's already covered it in y'all's Bible study. Is that true? Okay, that's probably been a while now, but... But, to, but look down at verse 18, because you have the just as through one man. And where does that thought end? I believe it ends at verse 18. So just as through one man sin came, verse 18, on the other hand, so then, as through one transgression there resulted condemnation to all men, even so, here's the other side, the good news, through one act of righteousness, there resulted justification of life to all men. And that's the reversal of the curse giving us justification. One man's disobedience, sin, death. One man's act of righteousness, justification, life. And that's the good news of the gospel, isn't it? Reversing the curse. So is it done yet? That's the question. Is this, has, has all this been, has all this, he finished the work of paying for the forgiveness of our sins on the cross. And is everyone justified as you can be justified? Have we all been glorified yet? What are we waiting for? Waiting for Christ's return. And without getting into, uh, we could talk a lot about eschatology, different views, but let's look at the big picture for a minute, okay? So First Corinthians 15, when he comes back, what's going to happen? And again, we're talking about that his humanity puts him in a perfect position to accomplish these things. Yes, the resurrection. The resurrection, look at First Corinthians 15. But now Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who are asleep. For since by a man came death, by a man also came the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ all will be made alive. So 
again, pointing ahead to the resurrection that we're looking forward to. So this is what his humanity has accomplished as well. Because was Christ raised bodily? So just as he was raised bodily, we were also going to be raised bodily. And if Christ wasn't resurrected, are we in a good position? We're of all men most to be pitied, it says in 1 Corinthians 15. So it's another aspect of his humanity, putting him in that position to reverse the curse. And again, if, if human nature was intrinsically evil, what about the resurrection? Resurrected bodies of more evil nature? No? Yes? No, he's going to make us perfect. It's going to be like back in the garden. And again, in the broad scheme of things, what's he going to do eventually? Create a new what? New earth. Is evil flesh going to inhabit it? Well, will, will, will our resurrection bodies inhabit it, though? You bet it will, and that's going to be amazing. So we need to dwell on that kind of truth more. He's talking about to the boys, like, hey, God's going to create a new heavens and a new earth, and we're going to get to live in it. And it's going to be perfect. And the light of the, that world is going to be the Lord himself and his glory. So that's going to be amazing. That's what we're looking forward to. But Jesus' work on the cross coming down here in the flesh makes all that possible. And we'll end on a, uh, a note that could be confusing, but look at Hebrews chapter 2. There's one imp or important implication of Hebrews chapter 2. Um, reversing this idea where, you know, when God put uh, man and when God put Adam into the garden, he put them in there to cultivate it and to keep it, right? To be a worker and put them, put them in charge of the animals, right? Subjecting the earth to, to mankind, right? Is that true biblical teaching? Yeah. So if you look at Hebrews chapter 2, without uh, having a lot of time to explain all the whole context, but it's been talking about how Jesus is better than the angels, and therefore we better heed his message, because if the angel's message was important, Jesus' message is much more important. We better listen to it. And then he goes on in verse 5 to say he didn't subject the world to come to angels, concerning which we we're speaking. But who has he subjected the world to come? What does it say? In verse 6. To whom has he subjected it? And that's what psalm is he quoting? Psalm 8. And in that psalm, it's making the contrast of, O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name, right? Giving God praise. And then marveling at the fact that he would consider man to take notice of him and subject the world, the earth, and the creation to him to have dominion over it, just like he originally planned with Adam. But then he blew it, okay? But he still, he hasn't let go of his plan. And his... Jesus is coming in the flesh, as we see here in Hebrews chapter 2, makes this reversal possible to where we will be able to have uh, the word, the creation will be in subjection to his people. So it says, you've made him for a little while older than the angels. You've crowned him with glory and honor. You've appointed him over the works of your hands. You've put all things in subjection under his feet. For in subjecting, this is verse 8 now, for in subjecting all things to him, he left nothing that's not subjected to him. So he's saying it's complete subjection, okay? But, what's the problem? What is the problem, verse 8? What does it say? Yep. And what does it say um, at the very last line of verse 8? So it's all, so he said, yes, he's issued complete subjection. One problem. We don't see it happening yet, do we? Just like, you can't catch the fish when you want to catch it. All these kind of things. But what do you see in verse 9? But we see him, and he's made for a little while lower than the angels. And he's talking now paralleling with Psalm 8, with man, who was made for a little while lower than the angels. So this was mankind in his description in Psalm 8. Jesus comes in the flesh and meets the same description, doesn't he? Except, yes, again, without sin. But he, he's made little lower than the angels, even though he's higher than them. And for a little while, and because of the suffering of death, crowned with glory and honor, so that by the grace of God he might taste death for everyone. 
so his humanity makes this possible. And that's just one implication of this passage. There's a billion you could talk about. Um, now, that last point there, does that make any sense? Yes. 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 Right. So, but Christ had to fulfill that human part of what God created first. But that was he was, he was divine, but he's also human because he took Adam's place and sent us rule over the earth. Right. Am I correct on that? Yeah. Now, we still, it hasn't all happened yet. I think it's going to be happening. You know, the millennium and the new heavens and the new earth right. is when it's all going to come to fruition. But yeah, yeah, that, 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 that's the point I'm trying to make, what you just said. Yeah. So it can be a little bit confusing at first. I've been confused by Hebrews too many times. But uh, are there any questions on that last point or any of these points? Um, I think it's uh, I'll have to look it up I think it's Dinamai though it just, it just has the idea of to become um, that's really the most common translation of it to come exist as that kind of an idea I'll, if I can pull it up I'll try to pull it up on my phone if it, doesn't, it might take a minute to get to it but I'll, I'll let you know Yeah, like I become a singer, and you're a singer. So if you became sin, that means you be. It sounds like he became a sinner. That's what it sounds like. Yeah, so that's a good. That's a good question to ask. But that's why I really emphasize this because it's all about the 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 penalty that he took on himself. So it wasn't that he committed the sin, but he took on the penalty of the sin. So that'd be the emphasis of it. Yeah, I've wrestled with the same question though, Mel. That's a good. Uh, well, it's not a good question because I wrestled with it, but I understand where you're coming from. So. Great. Well, um, I enjoy this stuff. I love this going through this stuff, but uh, it makes sense. And hopefully, it's not just informative. Hopefully, it can be life-changing too, because we're talking about the Savior of the world. Um, so that's not just information we're trying to get into our head. We're trying to be equipped for godly living, equipped to tell others. Like Mike said this morning. Our purpose, not just to sit around, but to proclaim his excellencies. So, great. Well, we'll move on to the union of the two natures next week, and that'll be a lot of fun. And make us scratch our heads at times, <laughs> which is good. If you're not, if you're studying theology and you're not scratching your head, then you're not really studying theology. <laughs> you're studying something, something else. Because if you're looking at the God of the universe and trying to figure things out. If you're not scratching your head, then you might look a little bit deeper at it. 